Hi, this is Mike Livermore. I'm joined today by Saranga Kasturi Rathne, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Saranga, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's really, really, um, I think this will be a really uh, fruitful and interesting conversation. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, artificial intelligence and intelligence and the themes of the ICA-4 as they re- relate to health and healthcare, um, which is Saranga's expertise and, and what he's been working on for the past uh, uh, several years. So maybe just to get us started, uh, what drew you to this intersection of you know, maybe thinking broadly, I guess, in uh, information technology and healthcare, uh, and then more specifically with some of the tools of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning and the like, what, what drew you to that intersection? So, Mike, that's a great question, and unfortunately not something I have a short answer for. <laughs> so, um, initially, um, I grew up in uh, Sri Lanka, uh, a small um, Asian country, um, started off my undergraduate studies in software engineering. So, you know, doing very, you know, very straightforward, you know, software engineering, programming, building websites, you know, the the usual bread and butter. Um, As as I um, approached the end of my degree, I felt that it wasn't really rewarding. I felt that I was basically resigning myself to a lifetime of, you know, doing doing useful work that I wasn't really passionate about. So I started, you know, looking around for what else I could use my expertise in, um, you know, any niche area I could contribute to. So after some digging around, um, I discovered um, the world of health informatics, although um, I didn't know it was health informatics at the time. Um, basically, a friend of mine talked to me about an open source project that was building hospital systems for underserved countries. So this really spoke to me because um, I did have an emerging interest in um, looking at underserved and vulnerable populations, uh, but felt that I couldn't do a whole lot because I did not have any medical expertise. So um, I started getting involved in this project, which is um, called OpenMRS, the Open Medical Record System, um, which is basically an open source um, equivalent of the EPICS or CERNERS that we see used in um, the wealthy nations. Um, my, you know, my uh, volunteer roles gradually grew, um, started taking on bigger and bigger roles. Um, and really felt that I belonged um, within the project, started working on uh, several implementations across Africa and Asia, um, and found it was very rewarding. Now, as I did that, I also realized that I was basically addressing one problem, but paving the way for another problem or rather an opportunity. So here we were going into underserved countries, building health information infrastructure. Um, these countries were adopting health health um, information tools, starting to use them, collecting data. But as they collected data, they didn't really know what to do with the data. You know, you go into this effort to build a tool, you're using it for, you know, providing care. But what do you do with this rich source of data you use? So... My, in my case, it was basically a natural progression. You know, okay, Suranga, you built medical record systems. You're contributing to these being used. The tools are now collecting data. What can you do with this data? So it wasn't me waking up one morning saying, you know, I'm going to be an AI person or data scientist. It was more of a natural progression of, I want to do something useful um, to serve the underserved populations. Um, here's how I'll apply software engineering into it. And, oh, by the way, now I need to figure out how to render value from these data sets. Mm. So that's basically the long answer of how I moved along my career into the healthcare AI space. Got it. Yeah, no, it's a super fascinating journey. So one thing that just I think is, is striking about this um, progression, especially, I, you know, I'm quite naive um, 
in terms of this area. So, so I just have a very outsider's perspective is, you know, I think of AI and machine learning and data collection and all of this technology as being a domain for the wealthy nations, you know, the most developed places and the wealthiest places within the most developed um, parts of the world. Um, and so it's heartening to hear about the, this technology having an important effect in uh, underserved areas. So I'm just curious if you could say more about the intersection of, you know, kind of privilege and wealth and access to these technologies um, in, in your experience over the past several years. So um, that's that's a good question, and I think it has been very eye-opening for me as well. So um, I think we are using two different terms here. So first we talk about the divide between wealthy nations and poorer nations, and then we are also thinking about um, disparities across each nation. For example, you know, when I came to the U.S. to start my doctoral studies, um, I was really stunned to understand, to realize how much disparities there were across even the most wealthy countries. So while we think about, you know, some countries, you know, being at greater need than others, you know, the same level of disparities exist across the U.S. Um, and others, you know, developed countries. So, AI presents lots of opportunity to make a difference. Um, for example, one of the major problems we have in the healthcare domain is that we don't always have enough appropriately trained staff to provide prompt care. And that's true in um countries in Africa and Asia or even in the US. So AI can really help make a difference. It can help us bridge those gaps, um, provide, um, provide a way for clinicians to make quick, accurate decisions, um, help identify what patients are at greatest need, um, identify uh, potential risks um, or wastage of resources or human effort. Um, so these concerns um, and the potential of using um, AI to address these disparities, you know, they are tremendous. Yeah, this is, you know, in a way, it really points to a, a kind of a fundamental difference between information technology, AI-related technologies, and other technologies that are used in the healthcare uh, sector. So, you know, if, if we invent you know, very fancy fMRIs or other, um, you know, robot, you know, robot enhanced uh, surgeries and other, you know, really high tech or really high tech drugs um, that, re you know, require enormous amounts of R&D, those um, tend to really benefit, at least initially, the folks who are able to pay for it. You know, th these are really often quite constrained if, if a drug's difficult to manufacture or, um, you know, there's only so many of these machines around, at least in the United States, the way that those are likely to get allocated is via wealth. Whereas AI, at least the way you're describing some of the tools, really lowers the cost of providing certain types of services across the board, which one would expect to help um, the least well-off members of society. Yes, that's, that's certainly true. Yeah, no, that's really, that's quite interesting. So just to kind of maybe get us into some concrete examples of how uh, how these tools are applicable in the healthcare context. Um, it looks like you've done uh, some work on um, extracting information, just maybe the way to explain this is extracting information from uh, information that's collected in what people in the field refer to as natural language, where do doctors or nurses are recording information about patients, and they're doing it in just the way that humans talk about things. They're not filling out a um, you know, they're not checking boxes. They're they're writing down a, a diagnosis or a description of a patient or whatever. Um, but there are problems if, you, if even if you collect this information electronically, there's some challenges to getting it for getting the kind of data out of that that you could actually use. So, how is uh, artificial intelligence or um, machine learning useful in that uh, in that area? So, certainly, there's a lot of great potential. Um, but I think I might need to um, unpick that question a little bit. Sure. So when we think about um, health data, um, 
certainly there's quite a bit of unstructured data um, being collected across health systems. Um, off the top of my head, I believe up to 80% of medical health data are unstructured. And maybe just to explain for folks who are unfamiliar with the, with this area, what, what is the difference between a structured and an unstructured data set? So, um, yes, so basically um, structured data is data that's comprised of very clearly defined data types um, that consist of patterns that make them easily searchable. Um, so, for example, it can be something like a blood, pres- a blood, uh, blood pressure measurement, mm-hmm. um, a discrete code, for example, a medical diagnosis code. Um, it can be something like a patient's height. Um, in contrast, um, unstructured data are not that easy to infer value out of. Um, it basically is everything that's not structured. So it can be um, signal data. It can be complex images, CAT scans, um, PET scans, or it can be um, free text data reports. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, my own work um, focuses heavily on um, the use of um, unstructured text data reports. So I don't, I don't have any expertise looking at images or you know other kind of signal data. But that said, um, I believe up to 80% of health data can be unstructured. And in many ways, there's a lot of value trapped within unstructured data. For example, a clinician um, might um, often make take a lot of um, structured data or might report lots of structured data. When you think about structured versus unstructured data, um, I do believe that they are complementary in, in many ways. So a provider might um, often re- record data in structured format. So medical diagnosis, um, orders, um, procedures, um, patient uh, demographics um, are often re- recorded in structured format. In contrast, um, nurses and other kinds of practitioners um, more often record unstructured data. So, for example, different kinds of reports on the patient's health and well-being, um, evaluation data, uh, perhaps um, a mental health report on the patient's um, feelings of safety, etc. So, there are very different kinds of data being captured across both types of reports. Over the last few years, we've realized that there is a lot of very important information that can be gleaned from unstructured data. And this is very critical in terms of understanding a patient's socioeconomic status and other um, social factors that might influence their health and wellness. For example, um, in the healthcare field, we are very concerned about what we call Um, social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. um, which are factors that influence how an individual um, lives, grows old, um, or, you know, conducts himself within his environment. Factors such as um, education level, feelings of safety, um, access to healthy food, um, access to healthy environment, um, etc. So, basically factors that influence how this patient is able to function within society, um, how they can respond to getting sick, and their chances of receiving appropriate, adequate care. Mm -hmm. So this kind of data is very useful for us to understand how a patient is going to get better and um, how they will do in the long term. So over the years, we've realized that it's often um, complementary in nature. Um, There are certain information we get from structured data pertaining to the patient's health status. This data should be supplemented from unstructured data, Um, looking at, of course, certain types of diagnosis, but also looking at their overall health and well-being. Mm. It's interesting. There's, you know, in a it strikes me at least potentially the case that there are 
it's kind of a sociological element to um, uh, to what data gets collected in structured versus unstructured format, where it is, you know, maybe uh, uh, folks in a certain place in the hierarchy within um, the medical establishment that are filling out structured, you know, putting in kind of this, this structured information, diagnoses or um, treatment information or whatever. These are doctors. And um, and also there's a kind of a sociological question of what questions that we know to ask, right? Um, versus the unstructured data is, is happening, you know, uh, is be get, getting inputted by folks in a different place in the, in the, in the hierarchy of the, of a, of a hospital, for example. And it sounds like as though that type of data is very generally observational. It's just whatever, not just whatever, but the kinds of things that strike that frontline worker as relevant to the person's well-being that gets inputted, but not necessarily in a format where there's clear questions that are being asked in stereotyped ways and being answered with uh, kind of a formal uh, set of answers. Yes, that's true. Yeah. No, and um, so so what tools then do we use to get at this unstructured data to extract uh, valuable information from these free text, open-ended uh, types of uh, uh, documents that are that are present in the medical system? So certainly there are a large number of you know publicly available open source tools that can be used. Um, everything from, you know, very basic if conditions to reg expressions to um, more complex natural language processing um, efforts. Um, I, I, won't, I won't talk about each tool in detail, mm -hmm. but I would like to highlight one particular challenge we face in the healthcare domain. Mm -hmm. So, in the healthcare domain, there is a lot of restrictions on sharing data um, with good reason. Um, there are concerns about patient safety and identity. As a result, um, very little patient data leaves health systems and makes it its way into you know models that are being trained. Mm -hmm. As a result, a lot of the publicly available tools haven't really been trained or generalized into the healthcare domain. So, for example, um, consider um, that you are looking at a patient report and are trying to understand whether a patient um, has been incarcerated. Mm -hmm. um, the word arrest might appear to be a clear indication that the patient has been arrested is in jail. Mm -hmm. However, in the healthcare domain, cardiac arrest is you know, an actual condition. Right. So if your NLP tool or other resource has not seen, um, you know, health data, it fails to understand that this is not the person being sent to jail. It's basically a condition they are suffering from. Mm -hmm. So um, another example I can point to is um, the BERT model. So, you know, BERT was developed by Google. It's an open source machine learning framework for NLP. Mm -hmm. It's a great tool. But um, it doesn't always work very well for specific health questions because similarly, you know, it, it hasn't seen a lot of health data. Mm. So while there are many tools out there that, you know, we can certainly benefit from, we've always had to apply additional terminologies and layers atop them um, to ensure that they are doing a, a good job for, you know, healthcare contexts. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and and I think it points to a larger kind of question that I have for you, which is the the relationship between let's just let's take the, the what we're talking about here particularly, which is the natural language processing community, the community of researchers that are interested in developing tools like BERT or word embeddings or you know next generation language models, and the uh, the healthcare community in general, just as a you know, uh, folks who are doing research in, in healthcare, is that is there a close relationship between those two research communities or, or are those the two communities kind of both off doing their own thing, maybe 
Um, the medical folks borrow from the, the natural language folks when there's some relevant developments there, but there's not really a, a close connection between the, the two research communities. So from my perspective, I think one of the biggest challenges has been um, restricted access to data. Um, you know, health institutions, national policies and laws that prevent access to data. It's it's not a lack of willingness or enthusiasm, but rather, you know, barriers to access. Um, in many cases, I would say that collaboration between the two groups has steadily grown over the years um, as a result of increased efforts to um, enable better access to data. Um there are a number of communities that are working to um, democratize availability of data, very large repositories of data, um, repositories that spread across the entire US or, you know, even worldwide. Yeah. Um, these communities have, you know, paved the way for um, the, the co-scientists, the computer science, NLP, AI experts, to um, work with the clinicians, the informaticians, um, to start answering some of these questions. Um, one example is um, the Odyssey community, that is O-D-H-S-I, um, which is a collaborative of um, a large number of health systems spread across the U.S. and worldwide. Um, they have come together um, to um, create large repositories of their data and uh, present controlled access of that data to research communities. So instead of having to, you know, beg, borrow and plead um, to get access to a small set of data, you can now partner with that community um, to get access to broad, diverse data sets. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a very positive development. We'll see. We'll see where that where that goes. So, just to um, kind of render some of this concrete, so um, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, one of the um, types of information um, that is available in some of these unstructured data is uh, kind of concerns things like socioeconomic status, not necessarily socioeconomic status, but kind of broader sociological or uh, social factors um, that may be relevant for, for health, kind of these social determinants of health-related issues. And um, it, looking over some of your work, it, it looks like um, you're engaged in a project to use some of this information, at least potentially, to predict the types of um, or to predict which patients uh, or which folks who are interacting with the system could benefit from what are maybe referred to as wraparound services. So maybe not direct health um, provision of health care, but things like social work or maybe even an attorney or some other um, broader social service. Uh, how far along is, 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 is that work? Is that something that's been deployed in the field or is it still in the, in the research stages? So, yes, you're talking about a project that's um, very near and dear to my heart. Um, this is actually built and currently in uh, production news. Um, it started off as a research project and um, eventually grew into a startup, mm -hmm. um, of which I am currently a co-founder. So, um, we now call this project Upstrums. Um, basically, that's Norwegian for upstream. Mm. Um, the idea is that, um, yes, people are, people are sick, people need care, uh, but in many ways, the, the best uh, approach to address these needs is to look upstream, to look at what really caused this need or this um, illness. So um, what we are basically doing is trying to look at patient populations and refer them effectively to wraparound services that can address these upstream needs. For example, um, a patient might turn up at the ED uh, emergency department multiple times and receive treatment. But what actually caused that ED visit? It might be that the patient has some behavioral health needs. It might be because um, they are currently in an unsafe living situation. So until we fix that actual upstream need, the patient is going to turn up over and over again at the ED. 
So this was our attempt to help providers effectively identify patients at need and point them to care. So what we are doing is we are looking at both structured and unstructured data and using it to build a broad picture of an individual's health and wellness. So we are not looking at just how sick they are, but rather their current um, well-being status um, as well as the environment they live in. So we trained machine learning models that incorporate demographics, clinical conditions, medications, um, social determinants of health, um, any procedures that they may have undertaken um, to basically predict what type of risk each patient has and their chances of improving once they receive care. Um, the model um, is designed to be as less intrusive as possible. It is designed to run in the background and provide useful alerts to patient to providers um, on what patients might need care and where to refer them. Mm. Yeah, that sounds it sounds like a very interesting, uh, a very interesting and potentially um, extremely impactful project. So, one one question um, that I think is kind of comes up a lot in the context of machine learning and prediction and, and these types of um, in these domains is how much of the of the uh, of the model, I guess, is based on um, kind of domain-specific expertise, as I think is a, a term of art in the field, versus kind of a non-parameterized, you know, general predictive model. So, for example, I can imagine uh, a predictive model that scoops up lots and lots of data and then makes a prediction. Um, for example, whether someone will be arrested or will have some healthcare crisis uh, of different sorts, uh, and that's that's a predictive model. And then there would be another kind of model where uh, information would be collected that then experts could use to kind of make a decision about whether someone could benefit from being referred to a social worker, for example. So, so I was wondering. Um, you know, in, in the project that you've been engaged with, what is that, what is that mix? Is it mostly a kind of naive model that's, uh, that's kind of blindly chunk, you know, churning away at data and making predictions or, uh, or is there a substantial area for domain experts or is it kind of a mixed hybrid approach? So that's a good question. So whether we focus on rule-based methods that allow experts to, um, define, um, what parameters or criteria trigger a prediction, mm-hmm. or do we uh, apply what we call a kitchen sink method? You know, throw everything we have at a model and then see what comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, in the clinical analytics space, we have found most success in a happy medium. Mm-hmm. So the healthcare domain is, you know, quite unique. Um, in many ways, we are we are working to address the needs of providers who are highly expert at what they do. Mm-hmm. The, ex- the clinicians, the doctors, the behavioral health therapists, they all know what they are doing. They only need support to make their life easier. Given that, we have found more success in working with them, not to just do a very blind kitchen sink method, but to bring both those approaches together. Mm. For example, a clinician might say that um, a patient who has... Um, recently become unemployed, hypothetically, mm-hmm. might be at higher risk of needing social work assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, that could be a rule-based metric that goes in. Alternatively, by using a kitchen sink method, we might be able to bring in additional metrics that inform the model. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, um, we do strive to make sure that the models are interpretable. Mm. So, yes, a model was built and the model com- uh, is a composite of established rules as well as new rules inferred by, you know, a, a black box predictive model. Mm-hmm. How does how do these predictions work out? Can we explain each of them? And do you, as a clinician who expects to use the model, accept these predictions? So we always try to ensure that our predictions are um, 
interpretable and that clinicians um, agree with what the model is doing. Right. Yeah, that's, that, that, that takes us into this you know, whole very interesting conversation about model interpretability and, uh, and the various trade-offs involved there. Um, healthcare is, is, a, is, a, is a fascinating context for that. So uh, in your experience or uh, as you're thinking through these, these questions, do you see, you know, having, well, one is maybe, uh, you know, do you see some trade-offs? So one trade-off that's sometimes offered is that when you have uh, interpretable models or models that, you know, folks feel as though they can interpret and understand, that often means that they're simpler models, right? They're, they don't have as many interactions or they take in less data. Um, and that might actually reduce the power of the model for making predictions. Um, so one question is just have you, you know, folks have, have, have discussed that as a theoretical trade-off. In your, uh, you know, really on the ground work, have you seen that as, as a real trade-off in real life that actually as you, as you try to make a model more interpretable, it becomes less powerful as a predictor. When you allow it to, you know, uh, to be freer in a sense, um, it does better from a predictive perspective, but then becomes quickly difficult to interpret. Or is that trade-off, at least from your experience, more theoretical than, than real? So a very good question to which I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> um, it's, it's not, it's not, very straightforward and I think sometimes it depends on context as well. Mm -hmm. So for example imagine you were building um, a complex deep learning model that is used to inspect um, cat scans or pet Mm -hmm. scans. Mm -hmm. In that case, yes, you need a very complex model um, and interpretability might be challenging because you are using a deep learning model. So there might be scenarios where a deep learning model that you know cannot be interpreted um, is the only way to go. Alternatively, if you are working on models that are trained using um, structured data, um, there are definitely advantages in, pardon me, in uh, being a happy medium. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, if you have an interpretable model, perhaps the model is a little more simpler. But if the model is simpler, it might also generalize well. So you might not be building a model that is really, really, really tightly tied to one specific hospital um, that's based in Carmel, Indiana and doesn't Mm -hmm. work anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So as you think about interpretability, you have to also think about what benefits come from a model being simplistic. and also, you know, um, if your model is less simple, you know, how much performance are you actually losing? And is that performance clinically acceptable? For example, you know, random forest models, um, extreme gradient uh, boosting models, you know, decision forest based models can be interpreted and also deliver very good performance. Mm-hmm. So if your, you know, decision forest based model gives you 85% accuracy, um, are you really going to go with a deep learning model with, you know, two hidden layers for a 3% performance increase? Mm-hmm. Perhaps not. Right. So it, it depends on context and also, you know, where you see the model being deployed um, and who will ultimately use that model. Yeah. And I think that, that raises just a point that you made a second ago, raises a very interesting uh, I think synergy between conversations that often are outside of the machine learning context and conversations inside. So what do I mean by that? So then there's often this conversation about interpretability uh, occurs where the machine learning uh, environment interfaces with society, whether it's in the healthcare context or criminal justice or government decision-making people start to say, well, look, I really want to have an interpretable model as a matter of fairness or, you know, uh, uh, justice or, or, uh, or some other kind of social value. But within the, even within the confines of machine learning, it, it's, it's well known that there's a trade-off between, uh, you know, uh, overfitting, basically, versus predictive accuracy, that you want to have your model well-trained uh, so that it's making good predictions on the on the training data, 
but if you overfit the model to the data, then obviously um, that's a problem because it doesn't um, it doesn't generalize. And I wonder, to a certain extent, I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on this. You know, it may be that the human desire that we have, somewhat perhaps not fully articulated, the desire that we have for interpretability is really just a preference for simpler models where, um, you know, where we just kind of intuit a concern about overfitting, right? And maybe we express that concern differently within the discourse of machine learning, we talk about overfitting, whereas in the discourse of society more general, we talk about interpretation. And maybe we're actually kind of talking about similar values, um, but just using different words for it. That's a tricky question. Um, as I think about it, I also think about the term trust. Are we basically looking for trust? Mm-hmm. When we talk about interpretability, we talk about needing a simpler model. Is it basically a question of trust? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in, in many ways, I feel like with the current landscape, there's often more emphasis on delivering high-performance models at the expense of everything else. Um, Fine, you build a black box model that works very well. But ultimately, nobody knows what happens under the hood. You have no guarantee of why a prediction is being made. So to me, when I think about simpler models, I also think about trust. I think about acceptance. Um, I think about the potential to take a model, um, quickly unpack why a prediction is being made and um, how um, the model will function across system over time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, Michael, is that is that what you were looking for? Oh, yeah, that, it's totally, totally fair. And, and I think the, the question of trust is a, is a fascinating one because I think there are, again, kind of multiple uh, dimensions to it. You know, we might trust a model that we understand more, right? Um, and again, we could even ask why, why that is. You know, why is it that human beings tend to trust models that they understand more? Uh, maybe that's a, a kind of an outdated instinct, and we should actually trust models that are more complex, right? Because they're they're more likely to pick up on hidden patterns. Now, but then this gets us back to what we were saying earlier, which is, you know, uh, a very complex model you might not want to trust because you don't know how it applies in other contexts or you don't know how it will apply over time. Um, so, I, so I do wonder if it, I guess maybe this might not be a totally fair question, but do you think people's judgments on these matters, you know, which models they tend to um, be inclined to trust versus the models that they are less inclined to trust, do you think that tracks... Um, kind of sound judgment about which models are more trustworthy? Or do you think people are applying heuristics or uh, just kind of um, preferring things that they're familiar with rather than um, things that are new, um, which wouldn't be very good grounds for just, you know, choosing between different models? So, so Michael, your question was basically in terms of trust and acceptance. Um, basically, do, um, does an audience tend to trust a model that is based on existing evidence um, that has been tried and tested over time, or whether they would trust a model that's newer, more black box, um, but also has been um, proven to show effective performance over time? Mm-hmm. So, I think, I think to answer that question, we also have to think of AI tools as something more than just a a machine learning model, but rather an ecosystem that functions to perform a certain task. So um, to think about trust and how it's accepted, we should take a step further back and, you know, think about here's the model, here's the socio-technical system it lives in. Um, So let's say we have a model that predicts patients in need of um, behavioral health needs. So it's not just the black box model, it's uh, the providers who use the model, it's the therapists who benefit from the model, it's the patients who are also, you know, providing input, turning up for care, um, and having their outcomes determined by the model. So I think either way, we just need to be sure that we are maintaining an effective system where we can continuously self-study 
and adapt model behaviors and performance based on feedback received. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, let's say you started off with a very simple model based on ex- existing knowledge. If you had a means of evaluating the model, looking at performance, over time, um, the consumers themselves are going to expect more and more. We are happy. Model works great. What more right. can you do? Mm-hmm. So, in the healthcare system, um, we have something called learning health systems. So, this basically grew out of um, a challenge that we had. We found that it was taking a long time for established peer-reviewed pub, uh, research to make it into clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So, to address the challenge and make sure that established uh, research products were coming into practice, we came up with learning health systems, um, which are defined um, as a system, organization, that basically self-studies and adapts um, using data and analytics to generate knowledge, engage stakeholders, and implement a behavior change. Mm -hmm. So, um, with Intercontinental Academia, um, I am actually hoping to investigate how AI models should function within these learning health systems. Mm -hmm. And as I see it, this helps us basically build trust across both parameters that you mentioned um, and um, basically ensure that the model is accepted across all dimensions. For example, um, a model might be highly accepted by the clinical staff but might be rejected by the hospital's finance team if they don't see appropriate financial value. Alternatively, the finance team might love it but um, the hospital's health quality team might hate it. So it's a matter of continuously evaluating, bringing together all the right stakeholders to the table to iteratively improve model performance and deliver what is appropriate and needed. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating perspective that's very practical is to think of these models not in some kind of abstract in some kind of as some kind of abstraction but as embedded in institutions in decision making processes um, where people have preferences they have different institutional roles and so on and really you know thinking of, of the models as kind of one actor amongst a wide variety of other actors and um, exactly and yeah that's very very interesting so one question that comes up relates to some of these themes and it's it comes up quite a bit in these conversations, are concerns about bias or discrimination in how these algorithms might work. And this, this obviously relates to questions like um, model complexity and so on. So um, you, I think you've also done some work in this area. So, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what some of the concerns are uh, with bias or discrimination. Um, you know, are there ways in which some of these tools... Um, might help actually reduce existing biases or discrimination in the healthcare system? And then are there some risks that they pose? And kind of what, what is the current state of, uh, of knowledge in, on these questions? Yeah, so um, I'm sure as you're aware, you know, recently there has, significant, there has been significant awareness of um, concerns of biases within models. Um, and, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, many of these models are biased because we all know that it's garbage in and garbage out. Many of these models are trained using historical data, which might contain, you know, inherent biases. So unless we effectively evaluate these models for biases and filter them out, the models are going to do exactly what they were trained to do, which is propagate biases further. Um, so there certainly has been lots of interest and awareness of this problem. Um, and there are certainly many ways to skin the cat. Um, one, one challenge that I am particularly trying to address is in terms of understanding um, the, the contextual considerations around biases. So for example... Um, what we think of biases might not always be truly harmful. Mm-hmm. 
For example, consider a scenario um, where a model refers a large number of seniors for care. So, a disproportionate number of senior citizens are being referred. Is it because the model is biased against them? Or because the model thinks that seniors are at higher risk and therefore um, need um, additional care? Right. I mean, I think in a way this points to just the nature of models, right? Which is if the model just recommended that everyone get the same care, it wouldn't be a very useful model. The model has to discriminate. That model has to um, mark differences between people and, and render predictions differentially across groups. Um you know, but but you wanted to do so in a way that's helpful rather than harmful. Yes. So we want to um, basically bring in that contextual perspective into model evaluation processes. So, for example, um, I want to build a model and apply it for clinical use across a broad geographic area. Mm -hmm. um, to do that, I need to understand what behaviors are valid and assist you versus what are harmful. So one part of my research um, um, involves um, looking at methods to bring together qualitative and quantitative research to understand what is harmful and what is not. You know, maybe just, just kind of expanding out a little bit from some of the, the conversations that we've been having, there are um, there have been lots of claims in, you know, sometimes in the popular press about the potential for really transformative changes as AI gets integrated into um, medical decision making through predictive analytics and, uh, you know, that we're going to have an AI will be doing diagnoses uh, much better than your doctor can, that uh, you know, the image processing is going to be catching cancer tumors earlier than radiologists, uh, and that there's, you know, the, the world of healthcare is going to look very different in 10 or 20 years than it does now. Um, as someone who's engaged in the practical reality of, of working on these tools um, and integrating them into real-world decision-making, uh, wh what do you make of, the, of these claims? So that, do you see that there's going to be a really big transformation in the next 10 or 20 years, or, or do you think there's a little bit of hype to some of this? Oh, um, I definitely think that it does going to be significant change over the next decade or two, um, particularly because um, of um, many um, breakthroughs in terms of democratizing access to data. Mm -hmm. um, the health AI field has gone from, you know, this um, esoteric land of, you know, a few um, bearded gurus with access to data to a much more even playing field. Mm -hmm. um, there is more and more access to data. There is more and more awareness of what can be done with this data. So um, we are really um, starting to um, speed up the next level. I am definitely very optimistic about what's happening. Um, and I'm confident that we are going to um, start making or start recording definitely transformative change in how um, AI can be used to care for the health and well-being of patients. Well, that's that, well, that's the, well, that's good news. Um, I mean, that, that sounds like something to look forward to. Another question that I have that's um, I'm just curious about uh, about this potential is there's a lot of talk about kind of prediction, right? Predict, um, you know, a predict diagnosis is, is is one that comes up all the time. Um, you know, you described software to predict what types of patients might uh, benefit from wraparound services. I also, I'm just, again, as a total outsider, I'm curious about what role, if any, you see of, of all of this data and data analytics in evaluating um, the efficacy of healthcare interventions. Uh, so we engage in all kinds of healthcare interventions. Uh, I, I mean, just constantly, that's what the healthcare system does. It's, it's, it's a system for generating interventions, surgeries or drugs or various other treatments. Um, is, is there much of a conversation in the field? Um, so, of course, we have, let me take a step back, of course, we have clinical trials, randomized control trials and the like, 
that we use to do evaluation of the you know, safety and efficacy of drugs or vaccines or whatever. But, um, but I wonder if, all, given all this data collection that we're doing, it would be possible to do evaluations of the, the actual efficacy of, of different treatments uh, over time, or, or is that something that's not really a major emphasis in the field? Oh, um, I definitely think there is um, a need and interest in doing that. And I think there's definitely increased focus on doing that, you know, as more access to data, you know, happens. Um, Here in Indiana, um, we have um, one of the largest, most comprehensive statewide health information exchanges in the U.S. So what that means is that basically... um, for a large majority of patients within Indiana, um, irrespective of what health system they go to, if their health system partners in what we call the Indiana Health Information Exchange, then we have access to build a broad repository um, containing the longitudinal data on that patient. Mm. So what that means is if I um, received care at downtown Indianapolis for the first two years of my life, um, moved to Fort Wayne, you know, for the next three and then came back, you know, I would they would still have access to my comprehensive data. So having this kind of longitudinal access helps with that kind of evaluation. And, you know, we haven't been able to do that um, without proper access to comprehensive data. So that's Indiana's story. Um, I previously talked about the Odyssey Network, um, which stands for Observational Health Data Sciences and Informatics. Um, They are also doing a lot of very great work um, through network research. So basically, you know, collaborators across different health systems coming together, agreeing on a question and then evaluating that question across each of their health systems. Mm-hmm. You know, an- another challenge for predictive analytics and data is when circumstances change or when circumstances change rapidly. So, of course, we've seen this in the context of COVID, um, a massive pandem- pandemic with the, the, the dynamics of which change over time and we're trying to learn quickly and completely shifted, you know, many dynamics within the healthcare sector. Um, how big of a challenge is something like COVID for our ability to, to make predictions or use the types of tools that you're interested in, um, given that, you know, when there's a regime change like that, um, you know, we could lose, at least potentially lose, the predictive models might lose some of their value. So COVID, I think, was definitely a game changer and eye-opener. Um Across the U.S., you know, health systems over the last decade, we have been strengthening, becoming better and better at collecting, curating, and, you know, harnessing data. So in some ways, you know, COVID was almost a proving ground because we had these data repositories that were effectively collecting. So we could, you know, use them. Um, and start understanding how we could rapidly build solutions in response to a pandemic of this nature. And, you know, if you look at, you know, published research, there are many scenarios where researchers were able to respond really quickly um, to use existing repositories to deliver, you know, very effective predictive models, proposals, um, solutions. so in some ways, it's it's worked as, you know, a validation ground of what we have been doing over the last decade. Um, alternatively, um, it also presented, you know, presented, you know, an argument for better national level collaboration. Um, sure, we have data. Sure, we know how to work with them. But how can we as a country come together, um, pool all of this data together? and start making effective policy decisions based on what we are seeing. So there actually were a number of initiatives that um, tried to harness data from across the U.S. For example, um, we had the National COVID um, Collaborative, the N3C. 
um, which basically brought together researchers from across the U.S. Um, and gave them access to comprehensive data on COVID patients. However, as we think about these questions, um, there are also some, you know, legacy concerns that we really haven't been able to address over the years. So one concern, you know, it's sort of my pet peeve, the one I keep coming back to. In many cases, our data collections, our data repositories, um, they are repositories of sick data. We know exactly how sick people are. We don't really know how healthy people are. So for example, you know, um, let's say John Henry Smith um, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, we have evidence of every single scenario, every single procedure, uh, medication that they went through. But we really don't have easy access to understand how they improved. For example, you know, we see that John Henry Smith may have received pain medication. We might be able to infer that his pain management improved based on how future pain medications are prescribed. So we might see pain medication going down and assume he's getting better. But there's really no straightforward way to check if people are getting better. And that I think has been very painful in, in many predictive modeling questions because we can't effectively capture patients' longitudinal history. We only see them getting sicker by the day, but we can't regularly capture them improving, them changing, them responding to some kind of treatment. And I think the only way to do that is to go look at the unstructured data where perhaps a thoughtful nurse practitioner may have provided a note. Patient responding well to opioid treatment. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, while COVID definitely was a proving ground to show the effectiveness of our health systems and our data collection methods, there are still certainly a distance to go. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And, and of course, even with the, with the thoughtful nurse practitioner, the, the someone who will still have to interact with the healthcare system, and so you know, if they just get better and stop going to the doctor's office, you know, we don't know what the story is. Maybe they just had a bad experience and they're still unhealthy, and they just, you know, have given up hope that the healthcare system can help them, or maybe they're completely cured, and we actually don't observe the difference between those two endpoints. Exactly. So, we 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 sometimes you know talk about you know predicting um, risk of no-shows for appointments. Mm-hmm. The, the easiest rule-based system for no-shows is young, healthy male. <laughs> if you right. are a young, healthy male, you won't, you know, there's a high risk of you not turning up. Right, right. Because you're healthy, because you don't need, and so you don't need to go to the doctor's office. Exactly, but ultimately that leaves huge gaps in the, in the data sets that we have on a particular cohort. Right, right. No, that's very that's very fascinating. I mean, do you think there's any? This is a little bit off the wall, um, but do you think there's any room here for, you know, working with uh, scraping data from social media, or if people opt into an app where they once a week check in on the app and and give a kind of a broad assessment of their well being, or devices? You know, I'm actually wearing a Fitbit right now, so that's collecting all kinds of passive information about at least my heart rate and sleep and so on. So. Is there, is there room for integrating those kinds of data with healthcare data to, to address some of that problem that you're describing? Oh, yes. So, yeah, that is definitely, you know, a, a new and upcoming, you know, line of activity. So we went from, you know, personal health portals, personal health records. Um, back in the day, we had the Google Health Vault. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft came up with their own products. Um, they, you know, did not succeed, I believe, because it involved lots of active data collection. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you know, um, with, you know, smart devices, you know, Fitbits, wearables, you know, this has definitely, you know, stepped up again. I do think there's lots of potential if used correctly. For example, you know, if you take your Fitbit or your, you know, device to your primary care provider, um, chances are they won't be able to, you know, really make quick decisions based on, you know, your activity. 
Right. However, a quick condensed view of you know your activity level. So not just how many foot, how many steps you walked, but basically a very quick level, a high level picture, might might help them decide how to inform your care. Mm-hmm. So I I certainly think there's a there's a good appropriate place for the use of wearables, um, as long as they integrate well into existing clinical practices and patterns. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's uh, many different directions that this is this could all go, and um, it's a very uh, hopeful and optimistic time. So, well, thanks, thanks very much for taking the time to chat with me, Saranga. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for having me.